You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. Hi, thanks for joining us again. This is Linda Sharkey and uh, very excited to have everybody back on the show. We've been having some great shows talking about artificial intelligence and uh, the impact that that's going to have on the workplace. Um, and, you know, I've, I've mentioned before that we I was at a conference in New York for the 21 Jobs of the Future, and it was just an inspiring conference. And uh, part of the sponsors of the co- conference was uh, Cognizant, an IT uh, global technology consultancy with over 250,000 employees around the world. And they just had some really wonderful insights around what's going to change and what is changing in the world. And, you know, it just, it it seems to me that this is putting pressure on all of the things that we used to do in the 20th century and making it a totally different and new approach to how we have to approach work for how we have to approach development of people for how we have to think about our world in general that we're interacting with. You know, George Orwell had a very interesting book, and I'm sure everybody uh, is familiar with it, 1984. And I was just reading an article today about how Orwellian China is becoming. And in fact, many organizations are becoming. Many, the, the, the reality of 1984 is here in many ways uh, that we don't even realize and recognize. Um, We were talking a little bit about Alexa, and I happen to love Alexa, but you know what? Alexa is collecting all of this incredible data on all of us and probably knows more about each one of us than we even know, frankly, about ourselves. Many of our patterns, you know, how we how, what time we go to sleep, the, the, the things that we do, the things that are our are, are, are favorites to us, common expressions that we use, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we address all of this? How do we make the best and take the best out of all of this technology that's coming our way? So I'm very happy and excited to have Ben Pring with us today. Ben... Uh, leads the uh, Cognizance Center for the Future of Work, which helps clients bring the future of work to life today. And of course, that is the whole premise of Morag's and my uh, book. And we're beginning to see that all of the factors that we speak about in that book are not only coming out uh loud and clear in this new workplace environment that we have, but it's be, they're becoming really the underpinnings of what we have to do today in order to thrive for tomorrow. So, and I think, Ben, you talked about all of this at the conference, which made it so very exciting. So I'm thrilled to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks, Lyndon. It's lovely to be with you, and thank you for coming along to the event. It was great to have you at the event, and uh, yeah, it was an interesting day, wasn't it? There was there's a lot to unpack. It really was a lot to unpack, and you know, you and I, and all of a number of us, eat, live, and you know, breathe this stuff, and it was really uh, fascinating, as you say. There was an awful lot to unpack. And uh, there's still a lot more to unpack. I'm I'm um, going to be with uh, Tony O'Driscoll uh, Friday and Monday, uh, Sunday and Monday for the uh, training expo in Atlanta, and we're really going to be talking about how training and 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 learning has got to really change from a 20th century bureaucratic sort of industrial setting learning model into something that's much more fluid and much more emotionally connected to people. But yeah, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think that's, in fact, one of the, the key planks, if you like, of this, of this new future that we're building. It's almost a foundation stone for the, the new uh, work that we're building, the new societies we're building, the new economies we're building. I'm just back um, from the uh, World Economic Forum events in Davos, and you know uh, there were many many sessions there and and many many initiatives focused on exact exactly that um, uh, the the World Economic Forum they launched a reskilling program uh, where companies like Cognizant and and others contribute are contributing uh, training material proprietary training courses to the general public to just to allow anybody to go onto that portal and and, and kind of upgrade themselves, upskill themselves, make sure they're ready for the, you know, this fourth industrial revolution that's coming. Yeah. Um, Cognizant's just announced a, a big investment yesterday, in fact, a $100 million investment in a um, education and training fund. And, you know, we're building out uh, more and more training centers to, yeah, exactly as you say, um, equip people with the tools of the trade for this, the new work that's emerging. So I couldn't agree more. I think we've, you know, we've, um, in fact, somebody made an interesting comment at an event I went to in Davos. Um, somebody probably my age, sort of mid-50s, he said that he looks at his son's um, curricula in his school currently, kind of teenage son in his curricula, and it, look, it feels to this guy exactly the same as it did when he went to school. Right. Um, you know, 35 years plus ago. And um you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not one of these people that thinks that, you know, we should be teaching kids C++ from, from seven. But at, the right. same time, but at the same time, you know, not having any tech-related, um, you know, or, or modern, modern tech-related um, um, teaching within the curricula in K through 12. I mean, that just, I mean, and I know um, maybe that's, being slightly um, too derogatory. I mean, there is some, but it it, it feels a little bit behind the curve, and I, I right. think more more emphasis on that is is probably just a you know, very very smart thing. Yeah, I think so too, and I think and I want to talk to you more about Davos, but integrating technology more into the learning, I think, is is really key, and I I love that you were talking about this upskilling, and and giving people opportunity to constantly be learning because that's going to be essential don't don't you think yeah yeah no i mean i think you look at a company like at&t and i think they've done some very interesting progressive work here where they've basically said to the workforce you know we will help you do that upskilling we will help you 
you know, continue to go up the ladder of your personal success. We'll pay for that education and training. But you you do that on your own time. You do that in the evenings. You do that on the weekends. That's your contribution. You know, you have an agency as as an individual on this. And I think that's a a nice sort of balance between... um, uh, the corporate responsibility, the sort of personal responsibility, yeah. uh, because I, I think you know. Again, I, I mean, I have teenage kids, and and I relate. I, I sometimes call them my um, my future of work focus group at home. You know, because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I look at the world through their eyes and how they're you know using technology and how they're interacting with their friends. And fast forward in ten years, they'll be in the workforce, and that'll be kind of increasingly the dominant way people work. But I, I think people of that generation, you know, this is the world they're they're born into, and they'll they they swim in these waters and they'll figure it out. But it's the people who are kind of midway through career, their careers, I, I think that I worry a little bit more about who, you know, the proverbial old old dog that finds it hard to learn new tricks. And and I think that's why AT and T and others who are um, taking that approach, you know, there's a carrot and a stick there, and I, and I think that's a, a reasonable, pragmatic way to think about it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think corporations are going to have to step up more, more and more to this learning dynamic. Um, it, it's not going to go away. It's going to be a bigger focus than it ever was in the in, in the in the 20th century. So, tell me, uh, Ben, what were your what were your biggest ahas from Davos? Um, no, it was very, very interesting. Um, I think really the centricity of data is, is the big story. I mean, you you alluded it alluded to it in your introduction introductory comments, Linda. This you know your mention of 1984. You know, we've we've. I mean, we've like you say, people who are deep into this and thinking about this all the time, like you and I. Have seen this coming for a while and have been writing about this for a while. We we wrote our previous book called Code Halos in 19, in um, uh, 2014, and that was all about the centricity of data. But I think that's fast forward, you know, four or five years now. Everybody sees that and sees that data is this incredible resource. It's this incredibly powerful material and tool, and it can be used for good. I mean, as you say, you love your Alexa, I love my Alexa, we love Netflix. That's all being driven by, you know, uh, data and then machine learning underneath it. We love that. But we can also all see the the dark side of the halo, as we put it. We can all see that that's very real and, and data can be abused. And um, we're seeing that obviously in the political kind of dynamic at the moment. And you look at the way that Roger McNamee is talking about data at the moment and so that that's completely central to to the folks that go to Davos now, and um, and I think what's probably going to be very very interesting, and I wrote about this um, coming out of Davos, was that really there are I think three emerging blocks, um, three emerging attitudes towards data, and they're going to see that the next sort of five, ten, fifteen, twenty years of the evolution of the internet and technology perhaps go in slightly different ways. I think I think you can look at the American sort of attitude towards data. It's still really a kind of wild west approach. Um, uh, there's huge money to be made. 
and I think regulation, you know, people are talking about regulation, but, um, you know, the U.S. Congress passed a law about cookies last year, and it sort of took them 20 years to figure out what cookies were. So <laughs> I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't particularly imagine that the Congress, who have got other fish to fry at the moment, are going to really do very much in this area. But in Europe, they're very, very focused on this. And you see the European Commission already taking um, significant steps forward to really regulate uh, the internet and regulate data within that in a very material way. And, and of course, that comes out of the whole um, East German experience. Um, it's a very, very different culture. It's a very, very different attitude towards data. And then, and then the third sort of uh, block, if you like, the third kind of different approach will be the Chinese approach. And again, you talked in your comments at the, at the top of the, the show about China and about surveillance economies. Yeah. Um, I think that attitude, that sort of central planning attitude, um, and, and you can already see that surveillance is, is, is there in place and the notion of uh, data identity and, and monetization and control. I mean, that's a very, very real thing. And and so the internet, you know, in its first 25 years has sort of gone along one track. The world has looked at it in the same way. I think in the next 25 years, those three parts of the world are going to look at it in very different ways. And you might, we might find in, you know, 20 whatever, 2045, that the, the, the internet has sort of balkanized and, and is, has turned into quite different things in those different parts of the world. Yeah, so, so you know, tell me, what, what do you see as some of the uh, dark sides of um, this tool that we have? And it's, well, it's clear what the good can be, but... The dark side is the scary side because there's yeah. a dark side to people. <laughs> yeah. No, the, I, I, um, it's a very real issue. It's a very real concern. I, again, just to sort of extend what I just said, I, I can't help thinking in, in in my mind in the sort of mental models that I how I think about things. You know, if you if you rewind the tape back 100 years or slightly over 100 years ago, we had this incredible... Powerful new technology and new tool called a car, called an automobile, right. and right. and you look at pictures of roads in New York or in London or in Paris from that period, and there's lots of cars there. Um, fast forward twenty years into the sort of teens and the early twenties, if you look at pictures of that period, there's lots of more cars there. And then you begin to see road signs and road markings and traffic signs and, and traffic and, and stop signs and, and traffic lights. Fast forward to a picture of a road today, the road, you know, there's tons of that stuff, road signs, uh, traffic lights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so that you can draw a metaphor that, you know, now the last 20 years we built the technology we built the road, you know, the fame, Al Gore's information superhighway. The next 20 years, we're going to put the rules of the road um, around. And that's all going to be, you know, predicated on, as you said, again, maximizing the upside, leveraging the upside of this and minimizing the downside. Because, yeah, the downside is very real. Um, 
uh, both in the commercial sphere. Um, and then I think, <laughs> I don't know how much we we'll want to get into this because it's a very, very complicated conversation, all in the sort of uh, the cyber industrial military complex. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is very, very very, very complicated. And, and now with AI in it, I mean, as, as uh, Vladimir Putin said last year, whoever controls AI controls the future. Right. And then layer on quantum computing into that. There's a, a great book that some of your listeners may have um, come across recently by um, uh, the Washington Post uh, columnist David Ignatius, who's written a book called The Quantum Spy. Right. And it's all, it's all about the battle for control of quantum between the uh, national security agencies of America, Russia and China. So, uh, you know, this is a very, very complicated issue. Um, personally, I, I, you know, I think one of the one of the toughest things in all of this is this is the interject and I, and I think this is what a lot of people including people like Roger McNamee are really pointing at in their critique of what Facebook and others are doing is really the interjection of advertising into the equation um, I think that's what's become so pervasive and you know we've gone from a from a world in which you know, Lever Brothers have created radio shows to promote their soap suds in the 1930s right. to, to a world in which, you know, entertainment is funded by advertising. It's funded by eyeballs. Now those eyeballs are online. We've got such incredibly powerful segmenting and targeting advertising, again, all based on this data, that uh, the the uh, rewards to the advertisers and the rewards to the middlemen have been so extraordinary in the last 10 years that this is a it's going to be very hard to put that genie back in the bottle um so to, to me to me that to me that's one of the kind of the big issues we've got to try and think through i i couldn't agree with you more i i'm wondering ben i, I what Two questions. I mean, you, you, you posed a couple of things that are really interesting, many things that are interesting, but who who do you think is going to be the vicar, victor of, around this control of AI? And do you think that we have the capacity today to get the best minds together to really think through for the world? Because this is a world issue. This is not a U.S. issue. This is not a China issue. This is This is a world issue. This is a global issue. Do you think we have the capacity as people to really think through the collective rules of the road as you talk about? Well, I mean, I think that's a that's a really big question. It's a great question. Um, I would I, I mentioned Al Gore a moment ago. Again, I would I would in my sort of metaphor, I would think I would relate this to the Paris Accord uh, in, in environmentalism. Um, look how difficult it is for the world to agree about something like the environment and about environmental controls. Right. I mean, it, it's very, very challenging for multi-state organizations like the United Nations, like the European Commission, to create global rules of the, world, the road, uh, we, you know, we've we've 
struggled with that, with the environment, and you know, Mr. Trump pulled out of the, the Paris Accord. So I, 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 I don't want to sound too cynical, but I, I think that's going to be difficult. I think, I think though, your question about the best minds, I think the best minds around the world are very focused on this. There's an increasing number of uh, academic and quasi-academic and privately funded consortia uh, with some of the big tech vendors involved in this who are bringing, you know, people who are deeply steeped in the underlying technology, um, legal skills, uh, ethical skills into these conversations. And, and, and so that gives me hope because I think that gives me a confidence that, um, you know, people are focused on this and are thinking about this. In, in fact, one of the, the first... Um, big AI conferences a couple of years ago was held at a a, um, a resort in um, Northern California where the first uh, big conferences on uh, genetic engineering were held in the 1970s and it was a, a deliberate sort of tip of the hat a sort of wink if you like that many of the same issues and considerations around genetic engineering are absolutely the same in this sort of AI context. So that was interesting. Uh, again, I think uh, I, I tend to be in the in the school at the moment where, uh, and, and there are some prominent people who've said similar things, that regulation of AI is probably premature at the moment because we, we, we really are at such an early stage of its evolution. Yeah. Um, to sort of put, put to put significant regulation around at the moment, may we may end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, uh, so, so I think that I think that will come in, in due course. One other thing uh, I think, Linda, that'll be interesting to see again. Uh, you can see how my mind works. I'm always sort of drawing metaphors between the future and the past. Right, um, right. Some people all know the campaign for nuclear disarmament, disarmament, C C N D. Uh, certainly when I was growing up in England in the 70s and 80s, C&D was a very, very big thing, big protests and, uh, um, uh, around the UK. And, and I think there's probably likely going to emerge, you know, a campaign for AR, AI disarmament, uh, you know, a similar, similar thing where people um, who are concerned about the negative side of this and the, and the power getting out into the hands of bad actors, you know, individual or states, bad actors want to sort of put um, uh, um, some some breaks on this. So, again, I think that's probably likely to happen. But net-net, I don't think any of those things will particularly be that influential in the next, certainly in the next five or ten years. I think we're at this period in which, you know, the, the underlying technological development uh, curve is so extraordinary and then in in the world that i sort of live in in the intersection between ideas and then adoption within big businesses that there's so much going on there at the moment and and so much to go because again we're at a relatively early stage of that that i don't imagine that any serious regulation even from the europeans will kind of derail that yeah. So, so Ben, I, I, this is just such an important conversation, and and I really, you know, hear what you're saying, and I agree with it. We we really don't know how this whole thing is going to shake out, and we are on such a 
massive trajectory, just even when we started first talking about this, the massive changes around technology and AI just in the last four months is even incredible. So we have to take a quick break, Ben, and then I want to come back and and I want to, you know, explore your book a little bit more and uh, a couple of the real key ahas that 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 you think our listeners would would really are important for them to know about going forward in the future. So stay with us. We're talking to Ben Prieg, who is a associate with uh, Cognizant Center for Future of Work. He actually leads that center, and he helps clients bring the future of work to life today. So stay with us. Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, five years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Welcome back. I'm talking to Ben Pring of uh, Cognizant uh, Digital Business, which is uh, a a huge global technology consultancy uh, with over 250,000 employees around the world. I probably would have to say it's probably one of the biggest uh, think tanks around technology today. Um, So, Ben, I, I loved your book. What to do when machines do everything. And um, I, I love the subtitle, How to Get Ahead in a World of AI, Algorithms, Bots, and Big Data. So it's fairly obvious why you wrote the book. But for our list listeners, why did you guys write the book? And then I want to get into how do you get ahead in this world? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we... Um we saw, I mean, again, our sort of job is to look into the future a little bit, look at sort of different trends that are emerging, try and triangulate between them. And as we started to develop the book in, gosh, 2015 or so, I suppose, um, yeah, we, we started to see these very, very interesting sort of lead indicators of how real... AI and machine learning technology was becoming. Um, you know, anybody who's worked in tech for any length of time knows that sort of AI has been around for a long time. People have been talking about it, working on it, developing it, speculating on it for for long periods of time. You know, back into gosh, back into the 70s, 60s, 50s. But right. it's always sort of it's always been you know sort of on the edge of the radar. Always sort of been you know five years away. Um, but what became more and more apparent as we started uh, looking into it and researching and thinking about it was that it was it was increasingly becoming prime time. And you saw these, uh, you saw the work that IBM was doing, and everybody knows the sort of Jeopardy story, and everybody knows the uh, the, the big blue story in chess. And then we began to see this interesting company coming out of London called DeepMind. Um, who were developing technology that they were using to play games and particularly the Chinese game of Go. And this was a real kind of wake-up moment. And 
um, as we realized that the technology they developed was beating the best humans at this extremely complicated game. And and so we really, from that initial genesis and, and initial idea, we started doing a lot of research, talking to a lot of people, both in the IT vendor community, partners of ours, other, other players, small startups, uh, but then also talking to a lot of our clients about what they were doing and, and indeed looking at some of the work that we were already doing for them. And it just became more and more apparent uh, and the picture sort of came more and more into focus that um, AI was really at the heart of all of these incredible developments. And it became completely obvious, uh, really in the process of writing the book, in the middle of writing the book, that AI is really the great story of our time. Uh, you know, we, we argue in the book that um, in another 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years' time, when kids in school, you know, the, the kids we were talking about earlier on, are studying history, they'll study 2017, they'll study 2018, what's going on in tech, just in the way that, you know, when you and I and many listeners were in school, we studied, you know, what was happening in the Industrial Revolution, what was happening with Isambard Kingdom Brunel, with Rockefeller, with Carnegie. Right. Um, you know, this is of an equivalent import. In fact, if, you know, um, some people, CEO of Google, has said that you know, it's, it's even more important than that. And, I, I, and, I agree with them. I think it is. Yeah, yeah. No, it, I think I think this is really, really significant. And and you know, and so that was again a, a big insight. And and really, the point of the book and to your question about what what should people do to get ahead, it's really most fundamentally to realise that to realize that, you know, this isn't science fiction anymore. This isn't something that you can think about in five years or, you know, 10 years. And it isn't really something that you should um, over-extrapolate about. It's, there's so many people talking about, and we've talked a little bit about it ourselves, you know, what happens uh, in 50 years, you know, what a very, very long-term future of this. The reality is that for most business people, um, they've got to worry about this, you know, today, tomorrow, in, in the next quarter, because the companies that are winning in, in finance, winning in media, winning in insurance, winning in uh, a whole range of, uh, you know, business areas, they are increasingly using this technology and, and they're the guys who are getting ahead. So if you're not doing it now, you're falling up. You're falling behind the curve, and and that was really that's really the central thesis of the book. Um, it, it, you should be focusing on this now, doing this now, learning about this now, deploying it now, working out the wrinkles now, rather than imagining that you know you can worry about this in a few years' time or worry about those issues that are you know in reality a long, long way away. You know, Ben, I, a couple of things that I think are really interesting. I mean, we, we say on our own book, Future Proof Workplace, that, you know, technology is going to be part of everything, absolutely everything. There's not going to be anything that's not going to be done without it. And I, I think that's that's pretty clear. I think that's what you're saying. But what was really interesting, we have this uh, little survey that we do with organizations um, to kind of see where the where – the, uh, challenge points are that they may be having today. And this is with Fortune 500 companies. 
And technology always comes out as a low-scoring item. It's not something that it seems, and usually the survey we do is with you know vice presidents and above, it doesn't seem that companies, by and large, are really understanding the impact that technology is going to have on their businesses. I mean, you're in this field. Do you, you, you see some, you see some people that are out in the forefront, but where do you see the masses? No, it's, it's a great observation, Linda. And, and I mean, I'll, I'll give you a little kind of a uh, little uh, vignette of what my life is like. I, I, you know, as you do, you know, sort of out on the speaking circuit and going and talking at conferences and talking to client, individual clients. And I'll very, very often, this is very, very typical of my, of my, of my day, I'll go into a conference room, a um, boardroom of a big company or clients or um, another, you know, company we're working with. And there'll be, I don't know, 20 people, 30 people, 100 people in the room, and I'll be doing my 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 spiel. And and you can sense, and then when it gets into the Q&A, it becomes very visceral and very real, that the room is completely split. There are people in the room who are energized, right. have got the memo, really understand this, are doing everything they can to leverage these tools to transform their business to become you know future ready in your language and then the other half of the room are cynical skeptical Panic. uh, uh, panicking uh, ostriches um, yeah luddites whatever and, and so that tension is completely real in most every business i go into and and i sometimes feel after i've sort of been there for an hour or whatever I've I sort of made the the case for the prosecution and I've tried to make a little bit for the case for the defense to to win over that side of the room and then I I often feel like I should just I should just um draw up a couch and lie on the couch and then I'm their analyst and they're telling me all of their concerns and fears and doubts and and having a family battle a family squabble in front of me and so, you know, that's how I characterize it, really. That, um, and, and that's the struggle. And I guess that's the skill at uh, an executive level of managing change is, is how you take people on that journey and how you, you keep the tribe together um, and you, you, you bring along the people you can bring along and you, you take tough measures with the people you can't bring along. But, you know, at the end of the day, anybody, any, you know, surely anybody in in business who's spent any time in business knows that really there is no such thing as stasis. There's no such thing as equilibrium. There's no such thing as business as usual. Right. Um, we've, we've all lived through incredible change already in our careers and, and that change is just accelerating. Yeah. Um, I think part of it, Ben, honestly is, you know, always how many courses have we all taught? And you're, you know, you're in the technology field and just getting people through the, the last 50 years or 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is, to accept the technology that's there required a lot of change management kind of stuff. The difference I think now is though, that it is so fast and furious that people are having a hard time um, assimilating the change as fast as it's coming at them. Yeah, no, that's that's very very true. Um, 
And, and and you're right. I mean, and I don't. I never sort of belittle uh, or or, or um, um, what's the right word? Never dismissive of of people who have built big technology empires and big businesses. And I mean, that stuff is completely non-trivial. And people have made careers and you know shared blood, sweat, and tears to build the environments that. Uh, you know that that run airlines and run banks, and they're they're understandably proud of those achievements and loath to sort of see them um, wither away. I, I actually wrote a. Some people might care to check this out. I wrote a, a piece recently um, where I think it was called "If You're Struggling with Digital Transformation, Think Like Clive Davis." Um, some people will know Clive Davis. He's a music producer. Um, he's he's been on American Idol and stuff over the years. He's 85 years old, and if you go back into time, he worked with people back in the 60s: Janet Joplin, Eric Clapton. But he's 85 years old, but he's still working with acts now. Uh, you know, the most people on this call wouldn't have heard of, but their kids would like them: Little Uzi Vert and people like this. And 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 I wrote this piece saying. He's a he's an incredible example of somebody who's managed to remain relevant and remain uh, and managed to change their incredibly fast cycles of fashion and taste in music. And the way that he the key to how he's been able to do that, and I think what a lot of people on my travels struggle with, is that he's managed to remember that the music that he's working with and pushing out into the marketplace is not music that he himself personally has to like. I, be, I bet you when he goes home of an evening and he's doing the washing up, he's listening to Frank Sinatra. Right. <laughs> but but then but then when he's in the office thinking about what's going to sell in the marketplace, he's listening to all this stuff that probably to people like you and I sounds, you know, sounds absolutely awful. Right. Um, and so I think I think to your point, the technology is changing so quick. And if you're 45 years old or 55 years old or 60 years old, you look at a lot of technology, you look at Twitter, you look at uh, Snap, you look at um, um, Slack and you think this stuff's terrible. It's rubbish. Right. You know, it's not nearly as good as the stuff we built. I don't want to use that. But those executives who are in charge of the budget and making those sort of decisions for the future, they've got to understand that the, that the company isn't appealing to them. They're not the customer base anymore. Right. And they're not the employee base anymore. They've got to be able to divorce themselves and the, the budget and, and prioritization decisions they make from their own personal taste. And I think that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that uh, and, and, and why, you know, going back to Clive Davis, he's been able to do it because he, he can make that separation in his mind. Well, that is such a brilliant point. I, I absolutely love that because it is true that, you know, you grow up in a certain certain context and then it's very hard to step out of that context and say, oh, well, now I, I, I really like this other form of music and you really don't. Yeah. And, and then you're resisting the the onslaught. But, you know, that's been a factor ever since man was around. But 
I don't know how you get around that, Ben. Well, no, the, no, it's it, it's it's called. I, I guess you know Elton John and Tim Rice wrote a song about this a few years ago. It's the circle of life, isn't it? You know, yeah, you, 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 you. I mean, it's a circle of businesses. It's the circle of of anything. Um, my my argument, and you know, I I think about this personally. Um, is I mean, uh, the root the root to the. The route to the answer, I think, Linda, is just to have, and it goes back to what we started talking about in terms of education and learning and training. The, the, the most precious skill I think anybody can have, and again, this is as old as, as time, but it, it couldn't be more contemporary, is you've got to be curious. You've got, you've got to have a curiosity for what comes next, what's around the riverbend, and, and, and enjoy the change and enjoy what's coming and and again that's kind of unevenly distributed some people have that i think the people who've got that that's a precious gift but if we could get more people to have that gift and more people to understand that you know under want, wanting to being inquisitive wanting to ask questions wanting to figure out and forge into uncharted waters that's really the way one individually remains you know, switched on and, and, and clued in and, and likewise for corporations. Right. Totally agree. You know, in your book, um, just switching switching gears a little bit here, though, still on the same topic. You know, you talk about uh, this Oxford study that estimates nearly 50 percent of total U.S. jobs are at risk from, you know, artificial intelligence bots, all this other stuff uh, over the next decade. So the question becomes, what happens to the human being? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. That study, the Oxford, the Oxford study, is, has become very, very well known. It's it's sort of become the um, the go-to <coughs> study. Excuse me. Um, and quote in this whole debate. Well, a, cu- a couple of thoughts. One is. Uh, we don't particularly agree with that that statistic. In fact, not not many people have actually read the study. It's sort of the number that forty seven number because it's such a nice, sexy sounding number kind of yeah. gets band, bandied around. Not many people have actually read the study. What it says, the study actually says, is that forty seven percent of jobs have automatable characteristics over the next twenty five years. So it doesn't say necessarily that 47% of jobs are going to go away. It just says that 47% of jobs can be automated uh, over 25 years. Um, so so that's one little kind of nuance within that statistic. We, we looked at, a, a, when we were researching for our book and writing the book, we looked at basically every piece of prior art in this area, existing literature in this area. That number and that report is, is a real outlier. Um, nobody else says anything comparable to that. And, and, and we looked at all the other reports and did our own analysis. And we came up with a statistic more in the range of about 10 to 12 percent of jobs in the next 10 years. Now, now that's still a significant number of jobs. That's about 83 million jobs in the Western world. But as a point of comparison, since the um, financial meltdown in two, 2007, from there to 2016, there were 15 million new jobs created in the U.S. So, you know, that that the reality is that in big economies, there's quite a lot of volatility, quite a lot of change. 
Um, and jobs can go away quite quickly, uh, unemployment can spike, and then jobs can be created quite quickly. Um, now, having said that, I, I, some people might be listening and thinking I'm sort of avoiding avoiding the real root of your question, the real meat of your question, which is, and, and we address it um, head on in our book, chapter three of our book's called There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Uh, you know, there is a, there's a real issue here that a lot of people are going to be left behind. A lot of people are going to struggle to keep up and compete. And, and ultimately, and I think, you know, sort of socio-political context, we're seeing this at the moment, countries can't be run like companies. You know, right. a, company, a company can riff people, get rid of people, those people go elsewhere, but a country can't do that. You can, you can put people out on the unemployment line, but they, they're still there. And, right, and, the, right. and society well, still... support them too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, yeah, there's that as well. But society still has to pay for those people and fund for those people. Yeah, so yeah. that's I think that's the socioeconomic issue is that we've got to keep people coming along for the ride. We've got to keep people in work. We've got to sort of keep the, the cohesion in, in a society. And, and we're sort of at the moment, I think, seeing what happens when, when we forget that. Um, but, but there's no doubt that uh, if you're in a job that is automatable, if you're in a job that is routine, where there isn't really that much sort of human value add, then, yeah, it's, it's very, very likely that, that, that software is going to come along if it's, if it's not already around and, and do that cheaper and faster and perhaps better than you. And, and that's going to be a very difficult, ugly uh, position to be in. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost the question du jour around the world at the moment. And, and again, in our mes messaging, we're trying to balance an acknowledgement that it's a very real issue uh, but at the same time, that individuals, societies, towns, states, countries, companies all have the means to hand, starting with agency, uh, to do something about it and to be ahead of this and to and to get ahead. And that's really again the going back to the book. That's the sort of subtext of the book. Yeah, very very interesting. You know. Um how do people get uh, – we're, we're coming up towards the end of the show. We have about four minutes left, Ben, and I, I want to get just from you like some three pieces of advice that you would have um, for, for, for leaders that are listening. What, what three things do you think that they really have to do? And then the other thing I want to get in before we, we get off is how do people get a hold of you? And you've cited a number of articles that you've written on I, – I, this Clive Davis article, how do they get that and how do they get a hold of you? So three pieces of advice and how do they get to you? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, well, I'll go, I'll go backwards. Uh, our website's called futureofwork.com and you'll see everything, uh, uh, the Clive Davis piece, a lot of other stuff as well, uh, links to the book, links to the videos we make, links to a new report that we did, Linda, that the, uh, you mentioned at the top of the call, 21 Jobs of the Future, where we talked about the new work that's going to emerge. So yeah, futureofwork.com. A lot of those are people-related jobs, which I yes. think is very interesting. So I didn't yes. interrupt you, but no, 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 that's right. Um, no, that's right. Yeah, people-based jobs. You know, not, not every job in the future is going to require a PhD in computer science from Stanford. I think right. people who sort of suggest that are probably miss, missing the real story. Yeah, so futureofwork.com. 
uh, you'll find us and you'll find a link and you can reach out to me personally if, if you'd like to. I'd love to do that. I'd love to chat to folks. Um, three pieces of advice. Well, the first, I mean, I think quite simply, one is if you're not um, already deploying some form of automation, modern contemporary automation, which has got machine learning within it, in the business unit that you work in, whether that's running a, a mortgage processing division or a customer service division, you should go out immediately and investigate uh, what solutions are in the market uh, for, for that area. And I, I would be you know, amazed, amazed if there wasn't a solution in, in your particular area that you were working for. So go out and play with this stuff. Um, you know, the, the fear is often comes from ignorance. We all know that. And so if you're sort of scared about this, you don't really know what's going on. Well, just dive in the water and figure it out. That would be one piece of advice. A, a simpler thing to do is to use some of the new tools, uh, personal productivity tools um, in this area. And just, again, going back to your Alexa comment, you know, you'll probably love them and you'll probably think this is fantastic. Why, why haven't I used this before? And it, again, will de-risk and de-scarify the trend. And the one at our events, Linda, we had the CEO of a company called X.AI, Dennis Mortensen, talking about his uh, solution that his company produces, which is meeting scheduling software. And it's a fantastic little, um, well, not little, a fantastic tool that anybody could use in their day-to-day, -day, you know, business life. And it's extremely interesting, extremely useful. Um, and, it, and again, it re really sort of gives you a sense of how these are tools trying to help you rather than take your job away. And then the, I think the third thing is going back again to where we started the conversation is to really internalize and begin to act on the fact that this is all ultimately a story around data and how you use data and how you put data into a machine running on machine learning. That's really the secret source of, of all of this. This is the secret source of Uber and Spotify and Netflix. It's, it's data on top of very, very smart machines. Right. So, you know, figure out what data sources you have, what data sources you need. Try and really put a, a, um, a process, a policy, procedures in place to get data to begin to manage it. And I think you'll be off to the races. Ben, I can't thank you enough. What a great conversation. I could go on. We could go on for another 45 minutes. So we're going to have to have you back on the show when we have some more insights from you. But thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this We've been spending the, the show talking with Ben Pring, who leads the Cognizance Center for the Future of Work. Get a hold of him. He is uh, just a brilliant, insightful individual around what's going to drive our world of work today and tomorrow. Thank you, Ben, so much. Thank you, Linda. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.